I'm Luke Story. I'm Christine Loria. I'm Natasha Kingsbury. I'm Angie Check. I am Dr. Aaron Eugene McMorrow. I'm Ben Joseph Stewart. I'm Bliss Young. I am Dr. Jacob Egbert. I'm James Goodlatte. I'm Kyle Kingsbury. I'm Lily Nichols. I'm Mark Groves. I'm Sarah Gustafson. I'm Jesse Golden. I'm Dr. Stuart Fishbein. I'm Marin Green. I'm Kelly Rogan, MD. Je m'appelle Rick Safries, et c'est le podcast du gynécologue holistique. Hello, I'm Paul Check, and this is the Holistic OBGYN Podcast. Enjoy. Welcome back, my podcast fam. Got a great guest today for you. My guest is Lindsay Milas. She and I have become quick friends. She's a practicing home birth midwife out in California, which with the number of regulations put on what midwives can and can't do in California, like I don't know how anybody has continued practicing, but fortunately people have done it because women are demanding out of hospital births now, especially in California. Like what a wild time to live in. Lindsay is really, really passionate about utilizing lifestyle change in order to maximize your health before, during, and after pregnancy so that you can exercise your autonomy. You can have a home birth midwife who's not going to be having to tell you, I'm sorry, now that you've developed preeclampsia or gestational diabetes, I can't take care of you. Now you're stuck. You either have to have a free birth, you have to go into the horrible hospital space, which you didn't want to go to anyways. It's not always horrible, but this person wanted a home birth. And the home birth midwife is stuck. They don't want to lose their license, go to jail or whatever for doing something that's outside of the bounds of their licensure. So Lindsay is pushing, pushing, pushing people to utilize diet, movement, hydration, breathing, stress management, sleep, et cetera, in order to optimize your health because she wants you to be able to exercise your autonomy and have a birth wherever you want. So she and I are super in alignment here. She's particularly passionate about placental health, which of course is absolutely governed by the external environment, just like any other organ system. And if that's your life support for your baby, it's a pretty darn safe bet to say that if if you're not taking care of yourself, your placenta is going to suffer as a result. Now, not everybody has the resources to do that, but there are certain very, very easy and affordable things that can be done in order to optimize your health to keep your placenta working as well as possible. The other thing I love about Lindsay is that if you're a birth worker and you're not comfortable talking about death, this is not just philosophical. Sometimes bad things happen. Nowhere in the animal kingdom, and we are animals, nowhere in the animal kingdom is it safe to assume that every baby is going to come through the process of birth safely, nor every mother. Fortunately, in our country, it's extremely unlikely that your baby will die in the uterus or shortly after birth especially if we don't have any sort of congenital issues or whatever else. But that doesn't mean that we, as birth workers, shouldn't have the language and the insight as to how to hold space for a pregnant woman or her partner who goes through one of these very tragic, albeit rare, things. And Lindsay, what I love about her is that she's actually willing to get juicy, to get really deep into this stuff. So you're going to love this episode. I'm going to let the rest speak for itself. We've got four sponsors. Remember, I'd only bring sponsors on who are fully in alignment with what I do. Every one of the sponsors that I bring on, they are products that I use myself. The first is Fit for Birth. (laughs) I don't use Fit for Birth because I've never been pregnant, but I recommend it to everybody and their principles and practices that they teach are hands down probably one of the best things you could be doing for your pregnancy. 
especially given what I just talked about, using lifestyle change. Like exercise doesn't have to break the bank. But if you are looking for somebody to train you, you need a professional who's trained specifically in the anatomical and physiologic changes that happen in pregnancy and postpartum. Otherwise, you can very easily injure yourself, you can injure your baby, et cetera. So fortunately, Fit for Birth has a wide variety, a whole host of professionals that are here for you to provide you with that customized, personalized pregnancy and postpartum specific exercise and nutrition coaching. You can go to getfitforbirth.com slash beloved. You'll save 20% on any of their offerings. I can't recommend these guys enough. James Goodlatte, the owner, has been on my show. He's an incredible guy. He really knows his stuff. Go listen to that episode if you need any further convincing. Otherwise, go check out Fit for Birth at getfitforbirth.com slash beloved. Again, 20% is a pretty darn big savings. Hang on, I have to take a sip of my Feel Free. If you don't know about Feel Free, go to botanictonics.com and find some Feel Free. You can get it in some grocery stores too, but dang, it keeps me going. And I have a code for that as well, Beloved40. By the way, any company that you're looking at is possibly being good for you and your health, go to my website and go to the shop and you'll see all of my discount codes for every company that I use on the planet. <laughs> all right, so Fit for Birth, our first full well fertility is our second sponsor. I love them. I love Ayla Barmer, who has started this. She oversaw all of the development of each of the products. There's only four. And I love that because they have four products that they do better than anybody else. She's a registered dietitian. She not only oversaw the development of the products, but also the entire manufacturing process. So you know that you're getting quality control through and through. There's a reason that Fullwell has been featured in so many publications as having the best prenatal vitamin on the market. And that's why I'm so honored to have them here because the people that need Fullwell are the people listening to this show. And that means you. Their prenatal vitamin is the best on the market. Look at the back of any prenatal vitamin you find in the supermarket or even like fancy grocery stores. You're going to see that the nutritional content of prenatal vitamins is so appalling Compare it to Fuo and you'll see what a prenatal vitamin really should have. And this is an insurance policy after you've taken care of all of those modifiable risk factors through diet, movement, et cetera, that I mentioned before. Best prenatal vitamin on the market. They also make a men's virility vitamin. I give that to all of my fertility clients. It's excellent. It provides all of the stuff that you'd find in oysters and all these other healthy foods, organ meats, et cetera. It provides it again as an insurance policy to make sure that you have as many modal swimmers as you possibly can to find that egg during that five, six-day fertile window so you and your partner can get pregnant. They make a Nourish Nerves tonic, which helps to balance out your sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous systems, helps you ease into sleep at night, especially if you're postpartum, you're not sleeping a lot, your adrenals are working 100% all day long. Let's balance that out a little bit with their Nourish Nerves tonic. And then lastly, they make a fish oil. It's not rancid. It hasn't been sitting on a pallet in Costco for the last year. You're getting the highest quality fish oil. And if you are balancing out your diet with fish oil, the reason that that's important is you get a correct proportion of omega-3, 6, and 9 acids. There's many other types of omega fatty acids. But if you can get those into balance, your cell membranes are actually more fluid. This is especially relevant for the developing nervous system of your baby inside the uterus. So all four of their products are incredible. Go to fullwellfertility.com, use code BELOVED10, and you will save 10% on any of them. My next sponsor is Terra & Co. I found this company through TikTok and I was looking for an oil pool. They make a gentle oil pool, which is basically take a little swig of it in the morning. You swish it around your mouth for two to five minutes. It pulls all the junk out from underneath your gums. It helps to restore the microbiome in your mouth. It reduces inflammation of your gums. And if you know anything about Weston A. Price and his incredible compendium on human health and disease, he was a dentist, by the way, the health of your mouth, your gums, your teeth, your enamel, is going to be reflected in the health of every other organ system in your body. 
I can't recommend Terranco enough because they make these oil pools and whatnot. They're just loaded with natural stuff, neem oil, hemp oil, hydroxyapatite. These are the types of natural, let's call them chemicals because they are, everything's chemicals. You blend that up in an Ayurvedic blend and it is actually adding to your health. It's promoting vitality as opposed to adding all these other crazy chemicals that are can't even pronounce on the back of your toothpaste bottle. You add these into your daily routine, you're going to help restore this harmony within your mouth and across your body. You follow it up with a fluoride-free toothpaste also sold by Terra Co. and you're set. If you go to Terra and Co, T-E-R-R-A-A-N-D-C-O.com, use code BELOVED15, you'll save 15%. I'm going to include all of this information, by the way, in the show notes, which you can find at BelovedHolistics.com. So don't worry about jotting anything down. Lastly, Organifi. Can't speak highly enough about Organifi. I always talk about Organifi Gold, which is this beautiful evening latte that I blend up with coconut milk. They have reworked it, retooled it for the fall. Now they have pumpkin spice gold and the pumpkin spice gold is just as delicious. Here's what you do. You're going to go to Organifi.com slash beloved. You'll save 20% on your canister of pumpkin spice gold. You're going to take a scoop of that, put it into a hot mug, add some coconut milk. You can warm up the coconut milk, full fat, organic coconut milk. Add that in there. Maybe add a little bit of water to water it down just a little bit if you're not really into full fat drinks. Foam it up with one of those hand foamers and you're going to sleep better. You're going to recover faster. You're just going to feel amazing. Your energy is going to be through the roof the next day. And the reason is that Drew Canoli, the owner, he's a friend of mine. He has put so much thought into what's in these products. It's loaded with antioxidants. It's loaded with superfoods. They have turmeric. It's an ancient root. It's loaded with antioxidants. It's turmeric. Like turmeric is so good for you. Add some ginger in there. Helps support digestion, immune health. Helps mitigate your stress response. Add two functional mushrooms. Reishi, the queen of mushrooms. Well studied for its relaxation benefits. Turkey tail, loaded with antioxidants. Supports recovery. Both of those have been used in China and beyond for hundreds if not thousands of years. Lemon balm, considered the calming herb. Add some additional magnesium in there. Magnesium is well known to promote restful sleep. Black pepper, some acacia fiber, which is a prebiotic. Ceylon cinnamon, you've got yourself a perfect evening latte. And you don't have to worry about the detrimental impacts of alcohol, Ambien, Ativan, whatever it is that you're using to sleep. THC, they all will disturb your actual sleep patterns and leave you feeling groggy and not rested to the best of your potential in the morning. So try this out. Go to Organifi.com slash beloved. You'll save 20% on their pumpkin spice latte. Mwah. Delicious. You're going to be thanking me later. Let me know how it goes. All right. We can't do this without our sponsors. Thank you for supporting them. Um, without further ado, here's my conversation with Lindsay Milas, California home birth, and all around just incredible woman. Thank you so much for tuning in. Welcome to the show, Lindsay. You've got a wide range of experience in the birth world. I know you probably don't like repeating yourself, but you've been doing this for some time. Tell everybody what you do, which is going to be no surprise to the listeners of this show, but tell us what you do. How long have you been doing it? How did you get your start? Why did you want to start doing midwifery? Why on earth? Well, it's a good story. I got pregnant young. I was pregnant at the age of 20, had my daughter at 21. And I was already working on an ambulance at that time in the emergency room at a local hospital from here. And so I just chose the hospital that I worked at to give birth, but like was deeply in this like 
childbirth classes and like researching and being like birth should be a normal physiological process, but I didn't align myself with the completion of that process. Like it was more of like, well, I'm just doing the steps. And I was young. Were you an EMT on the ambulance? I was an EMT. Yeah. Aha. It was awesome. Actually, to me, it's a lot of midwifery and not in terms of like the emergency sense of it, but like, you know, it's usually people that are calling an ambulance are on the other side of everything. Oh yeah. And so my favorite thing was working in what we call leisure world here. And it's an elderly community, a retirement community, and nobody wanted to work there. And I freaking loved it. I would sit in the back of the ambulance with those wise old humans and stare deep into their souls and their stories that they tell you that, you know, when they think they're dying, they tell you all the secrets of life. And it was just absolutely incredible. So we just have to be willing to listen, right? (laughs) Exactly. So, you know, I thought my mom could be my doula and my mom had two C-sections and is, you know, very, very medical person, which is a joke that I thought she could be my doula. And so I was talked into a very standard induction, just, you know, started with Cytotech, did two rounds of that, broke my water. When they broke my water, I actually felt my daughter come up into my ribs. She did not engage at all. She just lifted straight up into my ribs and then ended up with an epidural. I was on pit for 14 hours and then still two centimeters. And so, you know, it was 11 o'clock at night. The doctor walked in, probably wanted to go to bed and said, you're only two centimeters. It's not going to work. Your baby's too big. And I looked at my mom and my mother-in-law who were there, both had C-sections. And they said, oh, just do a C-section. And I ended up with a C-section. And you had the whole thing, huh? I had the whole thing. (laughs) And I've had a few surgeries before my C-section. And for whatever reason, my body metabolizes anesthesia real fast. So I typically feel things I've woken up during surgery before as a child And I started feeling things and started feeling more things and then was literally feeling the whole entire surgery. And I asked them to knock me out after she was born. Well, they knocked me out, but I was awake. I heard everything that was going on. I just couldn't talk. And I worked in that hospital, like I said, so I knew the machines. So I would start breathing really fast to get a reaction to the machines or start breathing slow to have the alarms go off just to know that I was still alive because I thought I was in a deep hallucination state, which I probably was. Probably was, yeah. (laughs) Uh (laughs) But I was aware of everything. So I woke up and put my child skin to skin and she latched on right away. And I ended up in a really beautiful attachment parenting relationship with her, surprisingly, with all the intervention that I had. And left that experience really reeling. Like I felt like my body had let me down, but I knew deep down inside that I had also been in this system that had very much let me down. And so I said, I'm not going to you know, go forth and finish nursing stuff. I'm going to go and work with childbearing women. And I started the path that became a childbirth educator. I became a doula. I started working in the hospital I would always get in trouble for teaching research-based information and having patients go ask their doctors questions. And really quickly, my daughter was a year and I jumped straight into birth. So my daughter's going to be 20 in December. So I'm coming up here in 19 years of being in the birth world and quickly realized that birth in the hospital, me as a doula, was not helping anybody, wasn't helping myself, wasn't helping women. Became a lactation consultant, did the whole IBCLC thing, which I have since dropped that title. Who needs alphabet soup, right? Yeah, 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 right. (laughs) And in the hospital, it was the same shit. I would go in and I would see the board and I would see who had C-section. I would see who had inductions. I knew all those women would be in my clinic. 
knew I wasn't really helping much. Yeah, I was nice to help women breastfeed. Obviously, that's a really important thing. But I always was thinking that, you know, if we fixed the birth, we wouldn't have these issues. So sure. started midwifery school down in San Diego. It was the first accredited midwifery school in California that actually lasted a while. I should say was the only one at that time, maybe not the first, but they were great. It was one of my mentors. She was absolutely amazing, wrote a beautiful curriculum, went through that whole process. And, you know, here I am. I started that process close to 16 years ago. So the majority of my births have now been home birth centered for sure. And it's been a trip <laughs> to say the least. Isn't home birth dangerous? So dangerous. How could you put your clients into such perilous conditions to have a baby. I know. I know. It's so crazy to hear those statements. It's just one of those things that Stu actually quoted me. I know you know Stu very well. Sure do. And I'll say over and over again, when I worked in the system, I felt like I was an accomplice to a crime. And back when I started switching over into the midwifery world, I really got into APA. I don't know if you've heard of APA before, but it's the Association of Pre and Perinatal Psychology and Health. They have a really good website that's birthpsychology.org. And I actually planned a little sister APA conference with the main, you know, people up in the APA board here in Orange County, conservative Orange County, California. And gosh, that was back, I think in 2005 or 2006. And it's the foundation of how I practice midwifery. It's knowing and research goes over time and time again, it shows us that babies are conscious and the way that we treat them, not just in birth, but throughout the pregnancy, throughout conscious conception really matters with their foundation as well. So nobody liked that conference here in Orange County, <laughs> Sure, yeah. <laughs> but it just, you know, spun me down this path of really getting to be a baby midwife, not just there for the mom. And so it, you know, Anybody that has attended a birth with me sees me speak to that baby as if they're just a normal person in the room. And even when their mom is in labor, I'll still talk to baby like it's a person in the room and because it is. And it's just a really beautiful way to integrate in their experience to entering into this wild, crazy world that we live in. I mean, you brought up the psychology piece. A lot of women who come to me for support have found me through people like you, you know, who speak like you, let's say. And I don't want to sound like a broken record. I might sound like a broken record on this episode because you and I have so much in common in our own stories. But this aspect of feeling like an accomplice to a crime, tending a birth in the hospital, there's a very real thing there. And I think there's actually a lot of trauma amongst the birth workers, the doctors, the labor and delivery nurses and whatnot, because they know that this is not right how we're doing this to be forcing vaginal exams after women are saying, no, 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 no. There's a reason that these psychological concerns The sense that, okay, I'm going to walk in, I need to do a vaginal exam. I may have not even introduced myself. Now I'm going to have your partner hold one of your legs down, hold your shoulders back on the bed. The nurse is going to do the same. And now I'm forcing myself inside of you. I know people think it's an embellishment, but a lot of women come to me afterwards and say something wasn't right. And when you start unpacking some of these little things, the little platitudes we say, the little ways that we circumvent consent, it is a crime. You know, I'm not mincing words here. Women are feeling like they are being subjected to a violent act or rape. I mean, they've used these words exactly. I'm not fabricating it for the purpose of building a coalition. I do think that a lot of women are they're gaslit then when they go to their OBGYN and say something didn't feel right. So it's fortunate. I think the one fortunate 
part of having these conversations is that more and more people are feeling, it gives them permission to really speak from their heart as to how it felt. They may never even have another baby, but now their sister's pregnant or their daughter's pregnant, and those feelings are real. So when we're in a home birth, we're on their terms. You don't go into someone's house and mess up their kitchen, right? Or force them onto their bed and tell them how they can and can't lay that's comfortable. You would actually ask them, like, where do you feel most comfortable right now? And that's why I think home birth actually is a lot safer because women aren't in a space of fear and they're not in a space of having to put their hands out and stopping you at every moment. I mean, there's something really important to that in the physiology of birth, but also in the psychology and the emotional and and, uh, spiritual bodies of women after the birth. Absolutely. I feel like when we take off these like rose colored glasses of what like this Western medical doctors, God kind of persona that we've been taught throughout our whole lives. I mean, I know I was taught that you go to the doctor for any time that you feel sick, you never go into your home medicine cabinet. You know, it's just somebody else that makes you better. And it really, and truthfully, like word for word, if you look at it, like the description of it, it is rape and it doesn't matter what we're told is, you know, consent or anything like that, how somebody embodies that and experiences that within is what matters the most. And so if they're feeling like they're being violated, they are. Yeah. Right. doesn't matter what your definition or what the story or what they said yes or no to, it doesn't matter if they feel that way afterwards, that's all that should matter in our data collection and our revision of policies and everything else. But we tend to not be able to do that for some reason in the conventional medical model, which is why people like you and I and Stu and Bliss and all of our friends don't do it that way anymore. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Exactly. In the recent interview you did with Paul Saladino on his podcast, and of course he's Mr. Carnivore, so he's very much into eating as much animals as we can or food from animals versus in some cases, maybe ditching vegetables altogether, which I can't get behind that totally. But I do think that there's something to veganism, strict vegetarianism. It's becoming more popular. So I don't want you to sound like a broken record, but let's talk specifically about veganism. And it's one of the things that I do get punched around for a little when I'm saying my message is veganism is probably dangerous in your pregnancy, unless you are very, very careful with how you're modifying your diet. And even that, I'm not sure there's a way to polish it up enough. So can you talk about some of the birth outcomes you've experienced with women who have been vegan? And I know you also have a personal story with your sister. Is that right? Your sister-in-law? My sister. Yeah. So my sister was a vegetarian for most of her life. And I don't care. Be a vegetarian and vegan all you want throughout all your life. That has nothing to do with me. But when you're growing. That's the overarching theme here is we're not telling anybody what they should or shouldn't do. That language doesn't belong here. But let's talk about what your experience (laughs) You know, you're growing a human that has organs. You're growing a human that needs really specific things, collagens and, you know, this placenta that you're growing that's, you know, full of this beautiful lifeblood that's going between you and baby. And it's just one of those conditions in life that if we look back throughout all of time, there was really nobody that was doing this in a vegetarian, vegan way. You know, we killed a buffalo and ate literally from nose to tail. And those organ meats were revered as the most incredible foods that there were. And so we've lost our palate for it. A lot of people will like, Ooh, turn your nose up to it. And, you know, sometimes I'm like, okay, stick your liver pills in the freezer. So they're frozen. So you can't even taste them as they're going down. But before, you know, it was one of those things that we look back, my grandma grew up on a farm and you bet she cooked everything with the lard and, you know, we were eating liver and we were eating brain and, 
you name it, it was there. And I think that's probably what pushed my sister into vegetarianism. Yeah. But when she got pregnant and I always go back to like, I'm never going to tell you to do anything. So the most important thing I want you to do is listen to your intuition. That's right. And maybe as a big sister, I was a little bit more forceful with her, but in general. (laughs) And so I said, just like, listen to your body. What is it telling you? And she's like, I am craving meat. And I don't even know what meat tastes like anymore, but I'm craving it. And so she lives in Sweden and was able to get beautifully sourced hunted moose. And I mean, she's never looked back. She's definitely not vegetarian anymore. But it's the situation that in my practice, what I've seen, and I know a lot of midwives won't even take vegans or vegetarians. And I won't do that. To me, that's not really embodying what midwifery is. But I would say that the majority of my clients that are vegetarian or vegan will start eating some sort of meat product throughout their pregnancy. And it's been really interesting to get feedback since that podcast with Paul, because I've been getting a lot of emails from people that have been saying, like, I've been struggling with infertility for years and years and years. Someone sent me your podcast. I started incorporating in meat organs and I'm pregnant and it hasn't, I mean, it's gosh, I don't even yeah. know. It's just been a couple months since it's aired. So it's not even like there's this like solid, you know, base that's been built with people incorporating these minerals back into their lives, but it's something that's really blowing my mind. So I recently had a client that gave birth. She actually had a beautiful birth. I gave birth like a multip, you know, someone that's had a baby multiple times before. And she got up, she looked at me, she said, I really want to go into the shower. And usually I kind of encourage women to stay in their bed because it's a good place to be right after birth, you know, the following hours after birth. And she was really insistent on it. I said, okay, if you're insistent on it, let's sit you on the edge of the bed. See how you sat on the edge of the bed. She felt good. We went to the bathroom and she just kept passing out. And it was an awkward situation. And her bleeding was okay. She was a vegan. Her placenta was very tiny and small with lots of calcifications. And we finally got her back to the bed. We had to kind of crawl her out of the tub and I kind of crawled her to the bed. And she said, you know, the next couple of days she felt awful. And it was surprising because she really hadn't bled that much. And she said, what can I do to feel better? I just feel absolutely awful. And there's a beautiful store down the street from us here in Orange County that's called Fermentation Farms. And they have beautifully sourced meats and raw milks and creams. And I said, send your mother to go get some raw liver, go get some raw cream. And I want you to have those as smoothies over the next couple of days with your placenta. And she did it. And she felt absolutely Mm. incredible. And they were like hardcore vegans. Like there was like vegan signs on there walls. You know what I mean? Like it was like for her to actually like tap into knowing that feeling best is what was most important in that moment, not sort of this like dogma of being vegan in that moment. It was beautiful to watch that unfold. So it's quite interesting. It's it's a place where healthcare providers, I don't think, I mean, I'm sure that in medical school, you were never taught the difference between a vegan, vegetarian or meat eating placenta. No, no. I mean, it's something you can observe. I heard you make an appropriate metaphor on the podcast episode with Paul, which was that this organ is growing rapidly, way faster than any other organ in the system, right? And you've got nine months for it to grow concordantly with this baby growing and the uterus growing. And you've got this giant, it does kind of look like a sack of blood, but it's very unique. Everybody who has seen a placenta knows a placenta. And you also know the difference between blood clots and placenta. It has like a I don't know, it's porous, but it's also very much kind of like a liver sort of consistency and one of the things you mentioned in the show was that you noticed calcifications in this and that. That's a sign of the placenta getting sicker or dying because it's not meant to live forever. But smokers, preeclamptics, 
people who generally have poor nutrition have placentas that look like they've been in there like a month too long. And so that's an important thing to consider. This is the baby's life raft for the entirety of the pregnancy. So if you are vegan, great, be vegan. But you have to know that this is absolutely detrimentally impacting the possibility of your baby getting as much nourishment as possible. Will that mean that your baby's not going to go to Harvard? Absolutely not. But if we're concerned about all of those things that might even risk you out of midwifery care, preeclampsia, fetal growth restriction, maybe the baby stops growing altogether and now we're really worried, is this placenta kicking out at 32 weeks, even outside of preeclampsia, something like that, if you want to have full autonomy, you need to be nourishing your body and your baby in the placenta as much as possible. And when you have a person who's a smoker or they're malnourished or whatever else, the placentas look like it barely made it to the third trimester. And that it's just true. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, if it's in front of your face and you're seeing it, it's not like we can make it like, oh, well, maybe like, no, it's actually the facts. Like yeah. this is what we're looking I'm at. I'm holding it. It's falling I'm apart in it. my hands. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. You know, another aspect that we need to think about that is like, yes, you said like, does this mean your baby not might go to Harvard? No, of course not. That's not what we're saying, but we need to really think about like the mineralization of our children with this yeah. too, because when we look at every single pregnancy that a woman has, we know that they're depleting themselves in mineralization throughout mm. their bodies. Mm -hmm. And so when this process starts, then each baby actually gets less of those really beautiful, vital nutrients and minerals. And so there's a beautiful friend on Instagram. Her name's Katya. She has nurturing Novas is her Instagram. Yeah, she's a good friend uh, of mine. Hashtag. Yeah. And she was vegan throughout her pregnancies. And what brought back to her that she started incorporating meat back into her children's diets is the mineralization of their teeth. You know, she talks a lot about how I think it was her third baby, like the baby's teeth were like disintegrating as they were coming in. Yeah, and, and like toddler ears, like super young. Yes, yeah, yes, yeah. Yes. She just did a really beautiful conference, if you'll call it that, called Confessions. And it started out as confessions of a recovering vegan. And she had all these amazing speakers come on that were vegans and talk about why they have started eating back into more of like an ancestral way of nose to tail. And it turned into this beautiful long talk with, and it, she changed it to confessions of a well-nourished woman. And it was just beautiful because it was testimonial. That's one of the most beautiful things. Yes, it yeah. might be anecdotal, but when you hear all of these stories continuously, it's like, we have to kind of change how we're thinking. And we look at like Bill Gates right now, he's buying up the bulk of yeah. farmland across the United States. Like why? Should worry people. <laughs> this is a human being that's promoting that we stop eating meat altogether, you know? So it, there's also this agenda behind it and we have to look at the big picture of everything and see what it is, you know? Yeah. There's some great stuff in there. If anybody isn't familiar with Katya's story, she and I have been friends for quite some time now and I've seen her on that journey and I also saw the transition and we've fallen a little bit out of touch as she's moved to Costa Rica and everything, but you're right. It is anecdotal. But this is a person who's very publicly speaking about it and giving permission for other people to kind of weigh in as well. And people are weighing in. They're saying, I had that experience too. So similar to anything else, once anecdotes start to pop up and we've got a collection of anecdotes, now we have a data set. So whether it's anecdotal, yes. you want to brush it off as anecdotal or not. You know, Lily Nichols wrote a whole book about real food and pregnancy. Do you know Lily? I don't know her personally, but I recommend her book all the time. She's absolutely fantastic. She's got the book. and Yes, absolutely. She is full bore, like, I get it, I hear you, and 
there is absolutely no way to meet the nutritional requirements of pregnancy through a strictly vegan diet. Now, some people have done it. They've had healthy babies. Katya is a great example. We don't know what the downstream consequences are because nobody studied it because it was just anecdotal. Yeah. And it might be multi-generational too. Like we oh, can't yeah. just look at one baby. Oh, yeah. We have to look at that baby's babies and that baby's babies. So it's right. too long-term for us to even kind of comprehend and put this little umbrella package together saying that this is what it causes because we don't know the long-term repercussions of it. That's right. Yeah. I really appreciate Lily's work because she and I have become friends and it's one of those books where it's like somebody wants to work with me as their like remote OB to help them navigate everything past birth traumas, everything else. And they're now pregnant again. And they had an issue with placental abruption, or they had an issue with, I don't know, growth restriction or what preeclampsia, whatever it is. Those are all related to how you're moving and eating in pregnancy and your sleep and everything else. But I send them, I'm just like, take this book and read it and let's talk about it afterwards. Because a lot of them are kind of, I've heard, you know, meat's bad for me and maybe I'll eat some fish and eggs. Like, that's fine. But let's cater the diet so that you're yes. maximizing nutrition. And some of the nutrients that Lily points out in her book are nutrients that are we learned about in med school, but like you said, we never saw the impacts of what nutrient deficiencies might have on placenta because in med school, you're not really looking at placenta. You're so in awe of the birth experience and you haven't done it enough to really enjoy looking at the shiny side of the placenta and seeing that tree of life, right? And seeing how the integrity of this tissue. So some of the nutrients that Lily brings up are vitamin B12, choline, glycine, retinol, which is the preformed vitamin A, vitamin K2, DHA, iron, and zinc. None yes. of those are... Copper. Don't ever leave out copper. And copper as well. I mean, copper yes. certainly comes with foods that have zinc in them and choline, etc. So what I tell people is, Yes, there is the list of nutrients that many people on a strictly vegan diet are going to be lacking. Now, if you add eggs, bam, you're already in a different category for me. If you maybe add some oysters, you know, smoked oysters, you're not going to go out to your like local scummy pond and get your oysters. But the point being, it may not be that hard to just add a couple of these things in. And of course, let's not forget, like you said, organ meats, go to like Paleo Valley, get some of their encapsulated organ meats, and you've done your job. You don't have to taste it. You just eat it with your meal or before bed, and you've probably at least gotten halfway there. So we're yes. not saying you go out there and start killing your own wild boars and feasting on their hearts in the middle of a field. We're saying not even cooking a steak. Perhaps you're just adding in some specific foods, but they need to be nutrient-rich from a really, really good source, not from Bill Gates's farmland, but from one of these pastured, perhaps even biodynamically raised ranches. Yeah. I actually had a client who was vegan and she came into the office and she was like, you'll be so proud of me. I started eating meat. Popeye's chicken tastes so good. And I was like, oh no, 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 no. <laughs> like, <laughs> that's that's yeah. not what we were looking for. Chick like let's, let's delicious. Like, step back a little bit. And, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. 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 It is something that is like really simple things that we can start to incorporate. And I, I'm so glad that you brought that up. It's not like you have to go buy a half a cow and all of a sudden became a full-blown meat eater. Like there's really simple things that you can do to change that. And so, you know, it kind of takes this like really overwhelming, holy shit. I don't know if I can do that. I don't know if I can cook it. And then it's like, no, well, you actually don't have to, you know, it's yeah, quite a journey for people to be on. And I think it brings us back to like what I really like to go into with great grandma wisdom, you know, like what did our great grandmas do? And maybe not our great grandmas, but our great, 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 great grandmas, you know, when we were in a cave, like, and that was the only source of food and nutrition that we had, there wasn't a lab that was making beyond meat burgers, you know, like 
what was that like? And what were they doing? And what was their health like? You know, like what were their structure of their bones? If we look back anthropologically speaking, like what happened back then? And so, you know, we can dive into that and then, you know, also look at where we're going with the future for it. And so we want to step into like, let's look at our soil people. Like we're talking about, you know, the integrity of something that is the most important thing. All of those nutrients that you just mentioned are rapidly depleting from our earth. So we have to look at this in terms of like, we get to be stewards for the earth. Like we get to be stewards for our children. We get to be stewards for our grandchildren. And there's a lot of research that talks about how our topsoil, you know, wasn't really even planning on going into the topsoil, but it's rapidly depleting. And when I go to Costa Rica, we have land down in Costa Rica. I promise you the difference of the taste of the food from here compared to in Costa Rica is drastically different. And it's because of the soil. It's because of what the cows are grazing on. It's because of what the vegetables are grown in. And here it's just like all the glyphosate that's been poured into, I don't even know how many tons, but it's like a ridiculous amount of tons of glyphosate that's poured into our soil each year with conventional farming. They say that the U.S. farmland is about 97% of the farmland in the United States. And what that's doing is it's just causing this rapid depletion. So a friend of mine, Zach Bush, who you might know, talks about how there's typically we look at the longevity of soil, you know, we shouldn't even be thinking about how much we have left, but we're right around seven to eight years right now with topsoil or around 54 harvests left with good quality living topsoil. And so when he said that to me, I was like, Ooh, that's Mm. grim. I'm not a grim person, you know, like, but how can we fix this? And so he has this beautiful project called farmer's footprint that I encourage you to look up to, because it talks about the things that we can do is individual humans to make a difference within our communities and really bring back that remineralization into our bones, into our bodies, into our families. Yeah. Amen. Somebody else who came up to mind, and Zach is somebody I've been looking to be in touch with for a while now, because coming from the medical establishment like you and I did, and then deciding we got to look at something else here. Why are we as humans suffering? Well, perhaps it's because the soil's no longer nourishing the foods that we're putting into our mouths or into the cow's mouths or into the chicken's mouths or whatever else. So starting with the soil is kind of like getting to the root cause of an illness and not to mention the ecologic catastrophe that's on the horizon if we run out of farmable topsoil. I mean, where are we going to go for food? Like we're going to go to Mars and we're going to farm on Mars. Like, come on guys, you know? Yeah. Well, it's not just the farming that we have to think about too. It's the way that our earth breathes. And if we start moving off from that topsoil, really helping our earth to breathe, it moves into the ocean and then our ocean becomes acidic. So it's not just food, which is obviously very critical, but it's the air that we're breathing as well. So have you ever seen biggest little farm? Yeah. It's a s- yeah, sweet little so it's just film. like little stories like that. You know, you go watch it on Netflix. I think it's on Netflix. And it's like you see how just one family can make a huge shift and difference with regenerative farming. And it's like if we all think small, but we can act big, it's just one of those things that like, let's do it. Let's gather the troops and do it. Yeah. Another friend of mine, Charles Eisenstein, talks about this. Like at some point we have to decide here's how we're moving forward. But instead, everybody's kind of just staying back and letting this settle, thinking it's just going to go away. But it really requires every person out there to make the best decisions they can. And to the point about adding food into a vegan diet, everybody says, well, I can't afford that. Well, if you go to your local butcher and you ask them for liver, 
it is the cheapest by ounce. It's like there's a biodynamic farm 20 minutes from me in Crestwood and at Fox Hollow Farm, and you can buy a pound of liver for $4. Like, who, where else can you get a pound of anything for $4 nowadays? So you're going to get the most nutrient-rich. This is a biodynamic, fully grass-fed and finished beef liver. They don't have anybody to buy it. So they're like, just take it. I bought a whole cow from them and split it with friends. It was like $3,000 for the cow. It's a lot of cow. Don't get me wrong. We filled up a whole deep freezer, but... Yeah, we have a deep freezer at home too, so I get it. Yeah. I mean, in case Bill Gates has his way, we at least have a freezer full of meat yeah. that we can share with our <laughs> friends and neighbors. But what was interesting is they didn't include the head of the cow. They didn't include any of the intestines, the kidneys, the heart, the liver, any of the bones, any of that part, not even the hide. And I don't know what I would have done with a hide, but I bought the cow I asked them, I was like, where's all the blood? Where's everything else? And they're like, oh, well, nobody ever wants those parts. You're like, I do. I'll take it all. (laughs) I'll get a second deep freezer and load it up. But, you know, the point being that if you don't even like the taste of liver for like a quick dehydration process in the oven, yes, it's a little extra work. But for $4 a pound, I'll do that work. Of course. And we have a pile of liver. We've got 20 pounds more liver that I can dehydrate and use. And even if we only had that as our animal product, we're going to be getting the richest animal product around. And yes, we eat steak and yes, we have burgers and yes, we have pork tenderloin and all those other things in our freezer. But, you know, the point being this, you don't have to go broke on this. Go to your local, you know, soil rancher, let's call them, and ask for the liver and the heart, grind them up, put them in the oven, cook them up, chop them up, dehydrate them further, powder them and put them in capsules and you're good to go or just eat it. Placenta pills. Placenta (laughs) pills. Yeah. It's kind of what it feels like. Steph's like, it smells like placenta in here. That's Uh what she told me. It does smell like placenta. You know, I had the honor once of butchering an elk. One of my friend's husbands is a really awesome hunter and he brought home an elk and I went over there with my son and we helped her butcher the whole entire animal. It took us the whole day And to be able to do that in deep reverence of the animal that was then going to feed our family was probably one of the most beautiful things I've ever done because every step that we did was done with like just completely in awe of this beautiful animal and like seeing the insides of it. I mean, like I know in you took anatomy in medical school, like it's pretty cool to see the insides of a human body. I've done it, dissected it, you know, that as well. And it's just one of those things that you just get to be totally in awe. And when we got to all of the organs, like, you know, we all took a bite of this might totally freak people out, but we all took a bite of the raw heart. You know, that's what our ancestors would have done. And then, you know, blending up the liver and for the kids to be able to be part of that experience and see all of it was just a beautiful gift that we gave them for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that that's actually one thing that is probably lacking. People like Zach and Charles and a good friend, Paul, who, by the way, he has a five-part YouTube series, five videos. I think each of them is like an hour. It may not even be an hour. It might be an hour total. But the name of his talk, his presentation was Nutrition, the Dirt Facts. And it talks about everything that Paul Check and the Check Institute talks about through the Mm. lens of the health of soil. Beautiful. And so it's a really nice addition to anybody's repertoire out there if you're looking for an hour to burn on YouTube. A really, really insightful. And he's a good friend and mentor of mine in Southern California. What's his last name? Check. C-H-E-K. Oh, Paul Check. Okay. Yeah, 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 Paul Check. Yeah. I was there OBGYN and we've gotten to be good friends since then. And they're down in San Diego, aren't they? Yeah. Like Escondido area. Yeah. Yeah, And Paul's whole thing is really, it starts with the soil, whether it's the human soil or it's the soil that your cows are grazing on. It's all the same. Like we are living soil ourselves. But since we have a hard time parsing out the human versus the microbes inside the human, it's equally challenging for us to consider that the soil is alive. And you said that a minute ago, the living soil. 
let me just throw that back to you. What did you mean by the living soil? Like just air it out for everybody. I mean, like you just said, the soil is alive. It's you go. And so one of the first things I did when I went to my land in Costa Rica before we purchased it is I stuck my hand in the soil and I pulled it up and like, you can see that it's alive. You can see that it's alive. It's not hard is like beautiful colors and it's moving and there's little bugs in it and there's worms in it and it's alive. There's mycelia running through it, like the living organisms. Yeah. Yes. And which, you know, we go deeper into that with all of that, with the mycelia, it's like that connects us to everything Yeah, that connects us to India. It connects us to Alaska. Like it's all connected underneath that web and it's just original interwebs. (laughs) Yeah. Interwebs. Yeah. Yeah. But it's so profound and beautiful if you think about it, because it's just something that it's what sustains us. Yeah, It breathes for us. It is us. So it's a beautiful thing that we can't turn our backs to anymore. And it made me think, this made me think of something else. One of my dear friends, Paris Hodges, she's really into this ground movement. I think it's growing pretty rapidly. I don't know if you've heard of Morley Robinson and the root cause protocol. Morley Robinson. No. He's somebody to look up. He's he's an interesting guy that's basically devoted the last, I don't know, 10, 15 years of his life to research. He goes to Starbucks every day and sits and reads research papers for three to four hours a day. Like that sounds absolutely horrific to me, but this guy has dove deep into the mineralization and it's what he's coming out with is absolutely fantastic. And what you're seeing right now for all the pro-metabolic type stuff is typically based in what Morley's research is showing. And so Harris and I started talking and I'd had this like profound aha moment where a light bulb went off and post-World War II, where we started fortifying all of our foods and, you know, eating out of cans and turning into TV dinners and everything like that. We also can look at the waters and what they started putting into our drinking waters. And so like this calcification process, if you will, of us depleting ourselves from minerals research will show this, like it depletes our IQ. And so when we think about that, when I think about this, this is my aha moment. It goes hand in hand with like, if we're more easily controlled, if we're demineralized and more easily controlled, like they know what they're doing. They clearly know what they're doing. They being, you know, powers of be big government, who knows the agricultural who knows what it is, but it's definitely something that, you know, once you start remineralizing your body, you have a deep wakening up of your soul and it's a rebirth. It's not something that's always pretty, you know, you have to go through like the transition of labor almost, but it's something that I feel like is happening on a very ground level. And it's definitely getting more and more popular as people are remineralizing their souls, so to speak. Oh, I love that. I love that phrase. It sounds like a good t-shirt we can market. I have all these great <laughs> t-shirt ideas. I got to start pumping them out. I love it. I want to go back to that word reverence, because as you were describing that and kind of connecting it to the awe-inspiring experience of being with birth, when you put your hands into that very rich soil and you see the worms and the larvae and you see the mycelia and you see little ants and potato bugs and this handful of soil has all these other microbes I can't even appreciate in there. When you can see that, when you can appreciate that this handful of soil from which my pepper plants are growing outside is so rich, that reverence, and even when you kill an animal and you actually get to spend time with this dying beast, and then you're eating the animal and you're paying respect and homage to the animal's life, living on the prairie and doing whatever that animal did, these are not modern machinations. I mean, obviously this comes from a more ancient, dare I say, first nation, at least in the United States, practices. 
getting back to that, when you have a reverence for it, you don't overconsume it. So if you have a reverence for what it means to kill a cow, then the vegans, you know, the notion that killing a cow is unethical, we can be confronted by that. Yeah, if you're slaughtering them a hundred head a day and they're standing in their own shit and piss all day long. I agree with you. I fucking agree with you. There's no reverence for this at all. So the vegans are actually right about that. But if you go out there and you can actually appreciate the process and maybe lay your hand on this animal and just say a little prayer. And I'm not saying pray to God, you're the Christian deities. I mean, connect with you. You are God. Connect with the cosmos, connect with this animal because this animal has given its life in order to sustain you. And you've made the decision, the conscious and deliberate decision to take its life in order to nourish you and your baby. That reverence is actually what's lacking in the conversation around soil, planet health, animal husbandry, et cetera. We need to perhaps shift into that direction so that we do appreciate that that hamburger at McDonald's is nothing like the meat you got from that elk that you just described having having slaughtered. I think we're missing a deep reverence for death. You know, I mentioned earlier that one of my favorite things to do is be on the ambulance with these old people that were dying, telling me their deepest, you know, secrets of their life. And we've feared death so much now that we've lost the reverence for it. Like it's just nothing but people scared shitless about dying. And death is absolutely beautiful. My 96 year old grandma, the one that lived on the farm, check out that longevity there. She passed away, oh gosh, probably 10 years now. And I took my 12 year old daughter to her. She died at home. And once she passed away, we cleared the room and me and my daughter undressed her beautiful 96 year old body. And we washed her 96 year old body and we anointed her in frankincense. And I promise you that will probably be one of the most pivotal things that stays with my daughter throughout her life. Because nobody sees that anymore. You know, that's not anything that we are shown. Death is scary. Death is, you know, zipped up in a body bag and whisked away. And it's like, no, like it's the most guaranteed part of life, people. Like you will die, I promise you. And so for us to step back and embody the wisdom that comes with it and not fear it is something that will change your life. You know, it will definitely change the way that you interact with humans, the way that you interact with everything that you do throughout your life. Yeah. Somebody I've gotten sort of closer to over the past couple months. I wish he was like my soul brother. Like I wish I could see him and talk to him all the time. His name's Stephen Jenkinson. He talks quite a bit about death and dying. And he came from the social worker role in palliative care and now has a couple of books. He's this prolific thinker and writer. And I put him up there with like Zach Bush and Charles Eisenstein. Like these are my homies. And when I spoke with him, we really kind of dove into the privilege of death and dying. Like what is the purpose of death? It's not the inevitable thing that you have to fear. Perhaps Mm -hmm. this is the final chapter where you actually get to take everything that has happened to you for the previous 95 years or 96 years in your grandmother's case and put it together into some story that makes sense to you. Maybe that's the hard work of dying. And what are we doing by... I don't want to use the word euthanize, but what are we treating when a person chooses to take a combination of medicines that will shorten their life? Are we treating their pain and suffering? Are we treating the pain that comes with facing mortality? And I think that's a really tricky question to grapple with because as a palliative care hospice doc, I've taken care of a number of people who have wanted to take the cocktail, which is now called physician aid and dying. And I'm not opposed to anybody's autonomy, but it should make us wonder, If this is so highly sought after, what are we actually treating? Yeah. 
And I think it's because we haven't taken the time to prepare through the loss of our loved ones. That's the practice rounds for us to be facing this final portal, or maybe it's the first portal of the next stage. I always you know, conjecture about that. But since we haven't practiced, since it's so taboo, we get to the very end and the confrontation is so debilitating that we actually want to not have to even look down that road. Like, let's just end it. Let's rip it off like a Band-Aid. But there's hard work there to be done. And the reverence for that process is lacking very much in the way that it's lacking for childbirth. I would totally agree. I think that's really, really great. I think Western medicine in general though, right? Like we've separated these entities of medicine. And so I always have said that midwifery was the original family doctor. Like it's just, it's just how it's been throughout all of time. And, you know, family physicians in general have kind of lost their place in medicine. They're still there. They're amazing, but like, they're not gaining the momentum that they should. They've lost that momentum. And so when you look at the traditional family practice midwife, as I'm going to call it, that was always womb to tomb, right? So those midwives and myself included, I've seen the transition. I've helped many people in my life transition before. Death is one of the most beautiful things. It's the same energy as birth to me. But when we've lost that village midwife that has the connection from womb to tomb, we've lost all of the answers in between. Mm. And people have nothing but fear. And I'm covered in goosebumps saying that. But people have nothing but fear because we don't talk about it anymore. So when we have these real conversations and we talk about how beautiful things can be that are associated with dying, then we step back into sovereignty and autonomy and realizing that the only person that's really going to make any impact on our lives is when we take control of ourselves and stop giving our control away to somebody else. Yeah. Amen. I can't even add anything to you're so beautiful with, obviously you're very thoughtful, you're very intelligent, but you've also managed to put words to something that is otherwise very ineffable. And I think finding language for these things is actually a part of the healing that we generationally need to do around this fear, this death phobia. Have you attended the birth of a stillborn? I have. Can you tell me about how that went for you? It's never easy to talk about, so you can, you know. Yeah, it's really interesting. And it's not something that I always like my pregnant clients to be in a really positive mindset. So this is something that I grapple with. I'm blessed with having a voice of storytelling on social media. And I grapple with telling these stories because I never want to move people into that fear because we're in a culture where people don't have anything to do with their fear. You know, there's nobody that they can go talk about yeah, this normal. That's a really good point. With. It's like trauma on top of trauma when you can't trauma talk about your trauma. fears. Yeah. 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 And so prior to 2020, I had never lost a baby in my practice. And with the onset of 2020, and I don't know, we'll be looking back at this for multiple years and trying to grapple and figure out what happened. But I have my own assumptions with what happened. But after 2020, there was four stillbirths within my practice. And it's something that home birth, stillbirth is pretty taboo. I feel like I kind of forged a road with it. I had a client that was 32 weeks and she called me and said she didn't feel the baby move. And I, you know, said, okay, well, like what my standard thing should be is to tell you to go to the hospital in case the baby's still alive and, you know, they can help you with that. She said, no, I know the baby's passed. And I said, okay, I'm going to get dressed and come over. So I got dressed and headed over and I couldn't find the baby with the Doppler. And there's a feeling that you will never forget that is imprinted into the depth of your soul when you feel a baby that's no longer alive inside of a mom's belly. It's just a heaviness. And I knew the life force had left that baby. And so 
she wanted to give birth at home. She had already had a previous baby with me at home. And we were trying to figure out the process with making it like legal, so to speak. And so we called the coroner and they said they they needed a confirmation of death from a physician, which I find really interesting because I can give confirmations of life. I can sign birth certificates without a physician, but I wasn't able to give a confirmation of death without a physician. So in order for us, you know, cross our T's and dot our I's, Stu, who's a beloved friend of mine, I've already mentioned him once, but he's just, you know, he's my buddy in this path. And I can't imagine not having him alongside of me. And he came down with his ultrasound machine and he diagnosed it, even though we already knew. And we started the process of bringing baby Earthside. And he left and said, Lindsay, you've got this. Like, I don't need to be here for the birth. And I mean, I knew that. And so I was with her on and off throughout the day just for emotional support. And I went home and I said, you know, go to sleep. Nothing's really kicked in yet. And she called me at one o'clock in the morning. And we went over and she was kind of like in her cave, you know, she was hidden in the back of her closet in the guest room. And my partner, Ashley Serapis, who's absolutely incredibly aligned with we're sisters, like the way that we practice, the way that we interact with the world is very, very similar. And she sat behind her in a squad and her husband was in front of her and her waters ruptured and this beautiful, beautiful, beautiful baby came into my arms and straight up into dad's and mom's arms and placed on the mom's chest. And we just sat there. It's sad, right? Like, it's not like it was this 96 year old lady that had lived a long life. It's different energy. Like this was a baby that we have to think of all the potentials of life that it could have been. But also at the same time, with this deep reverence of like, this was her sacred contract. Like this was her sacred contract with this life. Like she came for 32 weeks. She was inside of her mom's body, giving her life. She felt those kicks. She was with her throughout that whole time. And we may never know what the purpose of her passing was, but there was a purpose. And so we just stared at her beautiful body and kissed her and loved her. And they had a three-year-old at the time and we woke her up and she met her baby sister and she giggled with her and really like, you know, had this beautiful jovial sense of lightening the mood. And she put a blanket on her and, you know, it was just this experience where we just got to sit with this beautiful baby and we took pictures and just blessed and honored the body, the vessel that she had chosen to come into this lifetime with. And then the part following was really interesting as well, because we had already called the coroner to get this kind of like the next steps of what to do with having a home birth for a demise. And the person that was on call for the coroner's office was like, you need to call 911 and have the paramedics come. And I'm like, how no am I calling 911 <laughs> right now? Like that would be the most insane thing ever. And you know, so let me look at your supervisor on the phone and we got all the details ironed out. And I feel like I definitely have everything in place where this were to happen again within the community, I could take somebody through the steps. And, you know, the other thing that I found really interesting in the process was in doing the death certificate, they wanted a cause of death and the cause of death was unknown. We had no idea why this baby had passed. It wasn't like there was anything that was obvious. There was no, you know, genetic abnormalities or anything like that. Like it was completely unknown. And we said that even Stu called them. We said, it's unknown. We have no idea why this baby passed. And they said, well, we need a code. And I said, there's no reason for this. And they said, we'll just say the cord was around the neck. And I was like, but that's not why the baby died. And that's not what caused this. So we're putting that on the birth certificate just so you have a code. So, you know, like, where, where, 
yeah. protocols, but also like, where's the unknown in this? Like, it's unknown. Yeah. Sometimes it's just, there's no reason for us to know why it just is what it is. Do we have to make meaning out of a death? Why is that so important? Gosh, see, I look to other cultures for this. I think if you look at how other cultures mourn, it's something that's very different than Western culture. You look at Balinese culture and they parade those dead bodies throughout the street. And then they have a celebration of life where they actually cremate the body in front of the whole village. Tibetan cultures, there's a beautiful book on the Tibetan art of dying. That I don't know if you've ever read that one, but that's a really good one to the, read. The Book of the Dead? The Book of the Dead, yeah. Yeah, I've got a couple books of the dead. Egyptian, Toltec, Tibetan. Yeah, I mean, there's beautiful wisdom and how they honor the dead. And, you know, even Japanese culture, they have like public wailing where they wail about the loss of their loved ones. And like, that doesn't keep that energy inside of us, right? Like, yes, we can grieve so deeply. Like we can move the energy through our bodies so beautifully, but in our culture, we, you know, dress in black and go sit and cry for a little bit at a funeral and go on our separate ways. But it's an event when people die in other countries and other cultures. And so it's something that's missing here for sure. I mean, there's so much beauty to allowing that grieving process to happen and also knowing what the grieving process is. It's not just grief, you know, like there's so many stages that people move through with sadness and anger and blame. And I could tie that into birth as well, sure. you know, like not just death. There's grieving that happens with all of life's processes that we just kind of say like, oh, well, that's not normal or here, let me medicate this so you don't feel that and move on. Right, so. right. Yeah, there's nothing there to medicate and, you know, tell some of the stories I have because we just don't have time and I tell these stories all the time. But in the medical system, when a baby dies, there's still the same people are doing the clicking on the keyboards, in and out of the door, adjusting the blood pressure cuffs. And it's like, guys, enough. There's nothing to do here. No. I know you'd like fixing things. I know you like giving the right medicine and having the right answer on the test, but there's no answer. There's a million multiple choice options here and none of them are the, the correct answer. It's just a matter of being here and bearing witness to what this person just went through. Which is what home birth is, right? Yeah. That's, we get to bear witness. Right. We get to hold space. We get to be that person in the room that, you know, not create a blanket of safety because that's not what it is, but it's more of just like that sacred knowing that sacred holding of space. And in my opinion, think that that's what people that are helping with psychedelic medicine, you know, like trip sitters, the ayahuasca rancheros down in Peru, like they're doing the same thing. Like it's all the same energy. It's all this transition energy. It's the holding space of these transitions and transformations and us just saying like, you're safe. Like you've got Wow. Well, I mean, we could have done a whole episode on death and birth. I didn't realize that we were even going to go there. And I'm yeah, so glad that we that. did. I love it. It's something very unique that midwives do. And when I did my hospice and palliative care training, the reason I did it in the first place was, wow, what if I could be an OBGYN that kind of talks to people and connects with people like a palliative care and hospice physician? And then I realized, oh my gosh, everything I need to know about caring for a birthing woman is actually in what I'm learning about in, quote, caring for a dying person, which is sit on your hands and be present. Like being our greatest currency, presence. Nobody's rewarding us or incentivizing that, but midwives, you guys are present. That's the magic ingredient. That's the secret sauce that you can't get in the medical establishment. It's not a part of the recipe. The secret sauce of midwifery and being attended to by a midwife in the home setting 
is the presence that a midwife brings to the bedside, which is unparalleled. It doesn't matter how well you're trained, where you went to school, you're not a midwife unless you can be present at the bedside, whether it's at the beginning or end or flip them around. We had a midwife in our second pregnancy. We've had two babies now, and now I've had a vasectomy, so we're not having any more, which was a hard decision, different conversation for a different time. But the first one we had in the hospital, great OB, but it was still in the hospital setting. And I think my wife felt compelled to do it at home this time. And I think she felt empowered after the first birth. I mean, this is probably not how she would describe it, but having lived through residency with me at Kaiser, where it was a flaming shit show at all times because you're getting some really high risk stuff coming in and you don't know up from down. You're just sleep deprived and you're operating and blah, blah, blah. So then the second time around, she was like, I think I'm ready to have a home birth. So we got the room ready and everything, had it all set up. Her water broke on her due date, her guest date. And then two hours later, the baby, just under two hours later, the baby came out. And in the meantime, our friend came over, Sarah Charmoli. And she's kind of a midwife in her own regard because she has this breathwork company called Effigy. And she came over and started breathing with us at 6 p.m. The baby came at 6.46. And usually the breathwork lasts 60 minutes. But during this breathwork, I was out in outer space. I was on the bed with her. We never even made it into the tub. But this breathwork, it's hyper-oxygenating. So anybody out there who wants to try it in pregnancy, go for it. It's totally safe in pregnancy. I mean, nothing's totally safe, but I have no reason to believe that you're going to injure yourself or the baby. And Stephanie became very grounded in herself. She wasn't out here. She was like, baby's here, baby's coming. And then opened her legs up, asked Sarah to leave, asked our midwife to come up and a baby came out asleep on her chest during this breath work. The portal opened, the portal closed, and we had to wake the baby up to do the APGAR scoring. So the midwife said 10-10, but like 10-10, I don't know. I would have said (laughs) 9-9. I mean, nobody gets a 10-10, but she was probably trying to fluff me up a little bit. (laughs) But you did mention when we were chatting before about, you know, deliberate and purposeful breathing in pregnancy and perhaps even in the birthing process. Can you talk to me a little bit about your experience with breath work and maybe how you guide your pregnant clients into engaging in different types of breath or um, just maybe being conscious of breathing? Yeah. Breath work is everything. Yeah. It's life-changing. It's definitely something that I agree with you in saying that try it out. If you are pregnant, it is absolutely transformative if you get into the right you know, way to breathe. And most of us aren't even ever taught how to breathe correctly. And so it's definitely something that is becoming more popular and there's breath work classes, well, here in California, at least everywhere. But in terms of that breath work. So, you know, throughout the pregnancy, and I'm going to incorporate back into APA, the Association of Pre and Perinatal Psychology and Health. So, I find that sometimes during my prenatal visits, the most important thing that I can do is breath work with my clients, is taking them outside, taking our shoes off, sticking our feet in the grass or the dirt, and grounding down while we breathe together. And when you are modeled that, when you are shown that in a healthcare, you know, office, so to speak, that that's one of the most important elements of care, then you feel very safe using that and moving into that space throughout your labor process. And so, I mean, I think that's the thing I say the most, you know, like, let's take a deep breath all the way down into your womb. Let's connect with your baby. Let's breathe to your baby. Let's exhale out anything. And, you know, we kind of move our bodies together and There's different methods you can use, but just if you're conscious of your breath, like if you have zero access to anything, but you just are conscious of your breath, it will make a shift in everything that you do. So it's something that is really beautiful and 
heart-centered and baby-centered and it, it just brings you right back down. So, yeah. I mean, what a profound, amazing experience that you guys had with the birth of your second baby. How beautiful. Yeah. The most beautiful, very healing for my wife as well. And yeah, I'm sure for you. Being, for me as well. Yeah. Being in that Kaiser system, like, yes, I'm sure your wife had an amazing experience, but you having had gone through the Kaiser system. And I mean, I know how the Kaiser system is that you had a lot imprinted on you. So for you to be able to be in that moment and breathe in that moment and embody that moment and then have this baby come out that was asleep and here to show you all these lessons in this life, you you know transformed through all the things in your life that probably brought some trauma. Yeah. Lots of trauma. Yeah. Yeah. You know? I do think that birth workers, whether they're doctors or nurses, I said this before, but I do think that they carry a lot of trauma for how they're seeing babies born. If you're seeing a baby born, there's no way to not see it as awesome. And I mean, awesome, awe-inspiring, like yes. something divine is happening here. And again, this doesn't even need to get into the theology du jour. There's something that feels amazing about being with a birth or a death. Mm -hmm. And it might be very scary. It might be very sad. It might be the most horrible thing you've ever been a part of. But that doesn't take away the divinity. Divinity doesn't choose good or bad based on your preferences. There is something just magical happening there. And when you're in a system, you know, you're a nurse, let's say, in your bedside, and you're yelling at them to push every single time, and you're trying to speed this thing up by cranking up the Pitocin and whatnot, I'm sure that a lot of people in the hospitals don't feel okay about that. Yeah. But this is also the way we do things, and this is your job, and you find some way to make it work for you so you don't have to go home and feel bad about it. And maybe you actually believe it. That's okay too. Yeah. But I think a large portion of people also realize like, God, couldn't it be different? Like home birth does seem unsafe. We've had an operating room here, but do we have to be doing it this way? And when you're sitting- yeah. There's a deep remembering. Like people oh, have yeah. that deep remembering, you know? And one thing that I always would get me in the hospital setting is you'd hear these nurses or even doctors when the moms are pushing, like their famous line is get mad. And I'm like, what? Get what, mad. What's that word? Yeah. What is that crazy even in this room for? Like, why are they mad? Why are they you know? mad? Like, like, how about like, let's effectively push, like, go ahead and reach down to the strength of all, everything that you know, inside yeah. of your body. And let's welcome your baby. Like, get mad. So it's just like the way that we say things, the way that we present things is so important. It, it leaves lasting imprints on us throughout the rest of our lives. So like we can consciously doctors, nurses, midwives, everybody humans interacting with each other can make conscious decisions to use words that will leave lasting imprints on us throughout the rest of our life. You know, I don't want get mad to be that baby's first imprint. I want yeah. that baby welcome into that room with nothing but love. Yeah. Yeah. Amen. And do you have daughters of your own? I do. I have my daughter. She was with me with the passing of my grandma. Oh, that's right. That's one, right. You one said daughter, that. one daughter, one son. Okay, cool. So you're a mother, you've got a daughter, you've got a son. Yes. Are you married? I am. Okay. Yes. So you're a wife. I'm a wife. You are a granddaughter. I mean, you're all you play all these roles as a woman in the world. This is going to be a little bit out of left field, but given all of your experience in caring for people, specifically caring for women, what are a couple other things, maybe a couple points that you think everybody you'd like everybody to know if you could make a billboard? Here's what we need to be doing to care for women. I know it's a big question. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. I mean, I think it integrates back into our whole conversation, right? Like I feel like the presence that we have, the way that we can tap back into our breath, the way that we can remineralize ourselves, the way that we can be 
in this dynamic of relationship throughout all of everything that we do with our life in that beautiful state of presence and integrating all of those things in is one of the most important things that we can remember for ourselves because throughout all of time, everybody was doing that. We were down, we were squatting in the fields with all of our sisters and our aunties and our grandmas. And we were gathered around a fire at night and we were all together in this beautiful community and we've lost that, but that's what we did together. We had that intention of being in song with each other, being in breath with each other, being in grief with each other. And so moving back into that, I think is one of the most important things that we can do on this planet. Yeah. Aho. Yes, aho. I think that does it. One last thing I wanted to ask you about was, well, should we go there? I kind of wanted to get into licensing a little bit. Let's not go there. There are pros and cons to being licensed. You're in California. Maybe give us like, what's the biggest downside to having a license as a midwife anywhere in the United States, but specifically California? It's our restrictions. It's this hierarchy of academic OBGYNs that don't do anything than pick their nose up out of a textbook that don't have any real life experience that get to sit up in Sacramento and the medical board and tell us what we can and can't do. The biggest thing that we lost in 2014 was our twins, our breaches, and our post-dates for the past 42 weeks. Which is a big chunk of the people you guys care for. Yes. Yes. And they keep talking about VBACs. You know, I grapple with it all the time. I'm a big supporter of indie birth. I love those women deeply. Good friends of mine. Maren's like one of my best friends. (laughs) I actually hosted them. Gosh, I think it was probably pre-2020 at my house. And I love them. They're amazing. And I'm totally in agreement with everything that they're doing. I feel like licensure is the demise of traditional midwifery. It just takes away so much of what traditional midwifery is. And it takes away that sovereignty of putting back, you know, letting women have full control over their bodies and the decisions that they make. And so as we move through it, it's interesting. I would love to walk away from my license, but I've also seen traditional midwives get laid out here that don't have their license. And so it's a really interesting place to be in. And I feel like as the world rapidly shifts and evolves, that it has me constantly questioning that. So we'll see where I'm at in a year with it, but I definitely am aligned with the message of Indie Birth for sure. And I want to give a plug to that. I know that you guys are still in the process of looking for funding for that land and for that school. And it's something that fully aligns with my heart. And I know that one day I will be on that land with all of you guys and if it's something that ever calls to any of your listeners' hearts, like by all means, please, 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 this is what the world needs. Yeah, Indie Birth Sanctuary, I-N-D-I-E, sanctuary.org. We are developing our advisory committee. We are very strategically working on how do we reach out to the people out there who have money that want to combat the people like Bill Gates out there and conserve the land for the purpose of growing rich soil and growing and birthing rich humans. Regenerating <laughs> our top soil. Yeah. So important. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you, Lindsay, for being on the show. I feel like we could do a part two anytime you're ready because we've got so much more to talk about. We have so much in common. I just really appreciate you spending some time. It's always, I feel so grateful that people are gracious with their time enough to come on the show. So thank you. Any final remarks? How can people find you? 
best way to find me is on my Instagram, which is Lindsay Milas. I'm sure you'll have a link to the spelling of my, my last name, but it's M-E-E-H-L-E-I-S. And I'm in the middle right now of creating a new project that's actually called creatingritual.com. So Beautiful. On there as well. Yeah. Let me know how we can be supportive here on the show because ritual, gosh, we could go into a separate whole conversation around the lack of ritual and ceremony. Although I guess we did kind of dip our toes in there with birth and death, especially when you were describing your grandmother and the cleansing and the honoring as opposed to the putting into a body bag and rushing them off to a cold, sterile room somewhere. Yeah. Well, thank you, Lindsay. Yes. We'll get everything linked in the show. I hope you have a great, what is it, Thursday. Have a great Thursday. Yeah. Thank you. You too. It was a pleasure talking to you. Dang, see? See what I'm talking about? Everybody needs a Lindsay Milas in her life. I will put all of Lindsay's contact info in the show notes. Again, that's found at BelovedHolistics.com. Thank you to our sponsors for this episode. Fit for Birth. Go to GetFitForBirth.com slash Beloved. Save 20% on personalized pregnancy and postpartum-specific exercise and nutrition coaching. Full Well Fertility, hands down the best prenatal vitamin on the market. Compare the nutrition list to any other brand out there and you're going to be blown away. They also have a variety of other products, including a men's virility vitamin and fish oil. Go to fullwellfertility.com and use code BELOVED10. You'll save 10%. Terra & Co., our newcomer, go to T-E-R-R-A-A-N-D-C-O.com. Use code BELOVED15 and you'll save 15% on my very favorite and probably something I'm just never going to stop using. Their green oil pool is amazing. Blended through the lens of Ayurveda, Ayurvedic systems, all natural, improve the health of your gums, your enamel, your teeth. I went to my biologic dentist after using it for like a month or two, and they were like, what are you doing? And I was like, have you know, have you met Terenko? I'm thinking I'll probably try to get them in touch with the owners and get them to start carrying this brand. It's freaking amazing. They also make a fluoride-free, Ayurvedically blended, Ayurvedically, is that a word? Blended toothpaste. You're going to love Terran Co. So happy to have them. And then last but not least, Organifi. Go to Organifi.com slash beloved. You'll save 20% on their brand new gold pumpkin spice latte. Blend a scoop of that up with some whole fat organic coconut milk, and you're going to be sleeping like a little baby. Remember, everything you put into your body matters. Like, If you have the means to go and splurge a little bit on this and spend a little bit less on Starbucks, really toxic coffee beans and toxic teas and alcohol and all this other stuff, like why not just spend a little bit of money, vote with your dollars, buy from good brands that are actually supporting your health. Otherwise, you're going to pay later through all of the hospital bills and whatnot that you're going to accrue if you're not taking care of yourself to the best that your resources allow. So please support our sponsors. That's a great way to support the show. You can also share episodes that you love with the people that you love. Share the episodes you love with your friends, your family. Share on Instagram. Like, shout me out. I respond to every DM that is sent my way. My handle on Instagram and TikTok is Nathan Riley OBGYN. It's a very creative handle, if I do say so myself. Tag me on there. Let's start a conversation. I want to know what you guys are thinking, what's really resonating with you so we can start doing more of that. And I couldn't be happier to be connecting with more of you on Instagram and everywhere else. Lastly, if you haven't left a five-star review, go to your smartphone digital device. Leave a five-star review on Spotify and iTunes. We're doing great there. But man, there are podcasts that have a thousand stars and I've got 50 and they're pretty darn 5.0. 
But believe it or not, like that's the only thing the algorithm cares about. How many five-star reviews does this podcast have? If they don't, then why are we promoting it? They, I want them to promote I want them to get these conversations out so people can find people like Lindsay and our past guests, Jessica Pinn, Sandra Alvarez, all of them. I just really, really appreciate you if you've done that. And if you haven't, take five seconds and do it. It really, really helps me out over here. Remember, nothing on the podcast should be construed as medical advice. We're having fun here. We're entertaining. We're educating. We're providing really important information, but it's not medical advice. If you do want medical advice, you want to work with me as a private client, you can find me at BelovedHolistics.com. Again, that's where you find the show notes as well. And you'll find my shop there, which has all the affiliate links and the discount codes and all that other stuff in order to optimize your lifestyle using products that I use myself and that I recommend to all of my clients. Go to BelovedHolistics.com. You can work with me privately. Join my PCA. You'll get access to my Discord server. You can join my collaborator program. You can hire me as your doctor, your consultant. I'm very, very happy to work with anybody out there who's really, really valuing lifestyle modification as a means to optimizing their health. It would be really, really exciting to meet you on the other side over there. My next guest is really, really fun. Her name's Jade Bryce. She's a former model, was in Playboy a bunch of times. She um, was an MMA ring girl for, I don't think it was the UFC, it was one of the others. She's this incredibly beautiful person inside and out. She has transitioned from modeling to working with Tantra. She talks about her birth traumas. She talks about womb wounds. And she talks about this very funny exchange she had with a Playboy photographer who recommended that she take birth control to make her boobs perkier. Can't make this stuff up. This is a wide-ranging conversation. You're going to absolutely love it. I'll be seeing you guys in about a week for my conversation with Jade. In the meantime, have a great weekend. Love your kids, love your wife, love your partner, whoever you are out there. And I will see you next time on the Holistic Obituary podcast. Take care, everybody. 